Well, if you haven't already turned to Revelation chapter 2, go ahead and turn there. That's where my Bible is flipped to. It's the last book of the Bible, and it's a fascinating book. The book of Revelation is a book of prophecy. Much of it is written in the apocalyptic genre. Apocalyptic writings contain symbolism that point to future realities. But for those of you who are ready for the dramatic, you may be disappointed. There are no dragons in our passage today. Last I checked, there are no four-headed creatures in chapter 2. And over the next seven weeks, our pastors will not be revealing just who is the Antichrist. And to make matters even more boring, we're not going to tell you what day the world is going to end on. You're just going to have to keep your calendar wide open. For that matter, if any pastor declares the very day the world will end, you better run. Run fast, run far, because only the Lord knows. He's keeping that to himself. Those details are actually not the point of Revelation. This book is not a science fiction novel seeking to satisfy your every curiosity. It's a true book with important details. There's judgment, there's the defeat of evil, There's also much in here that we as Christians can and do disagree about. We can come to different conclusions about the nature of the rapture, how long the millennium is, are we in the millennium now, who's the Antichrist, and so on. But here's the important thing. What unites us as Christians, what binds us together is that undoubtedly and unashamedly we believe that our Savior Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, became man and died on the cross and rose triumphantly on the third day. And he will, with 100% certainty, return for his people to make all wrong things right. A revelation is a comfort for God's people. Jesus is coming back. Well, if you want to know all the other answers to Revelation, well, you just need to be one of our youth group teen girls because they're studying the book of Revelation on Tuesdays at 3 p.m. I hope you teen girls are in that study. There's so much to learn in this book. However, even in that study, you'll see that the point of Revelation is that we have hope. Well, in chapters 2 and 3, we see a series of seven letters to different historical churches. I love these letters because it's like a final word to the church. It's instruction on what God wants to see in a church, what he doesn't want to see in a church. Now, Jesus is honest here. He says, this is what I want. This is what I don't want. Well, these letters have much to say to us today. And so without further ado, let's dive right in. Revelation chapter 2, verse 1. The angel of the church in Ephesus writes, the word of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, to the angel of the church. The letter is addressed not to an actual angel, though nowhere in scripture do we see the scripture is given to an angel. It's always given to humans. And so that word angelos here can also mean messenger. And I think that's what's in view here is that it's sent to a leader in the church. Here's what's fascinating. This isn't just any letter. These are the words of Jesus. It's from the one who holds the seven stars. And we know from back in Revelation chapter 1 that this is Jesus. And the lampstands are the churches. This is a beautiful picture of Christ's presence with us. Now, studying the Bible is not like reading an ordinary biography. Our goal is not to remember a dead hero. No, Jesus is alive. And he's among us even now. He's with us even now. He's the head of the church. And the Bible is a living book. Jesus is giving the church's important instruction. The metaphor of the church as a lampstand points to the reality that we're to be a light to the world. 
We're meant to be a witness for Christ. And part of Christ's priestly role is to tend to the lampstands and to prepare us for the task of shining his light in the world. When the Old Testament temple, the priest would turn the lamps on, of course, with, with oil, but he would trim the lamps, he would remove the wick and the used oil, and he'd refill the lamps with fresh oil and relight those lights that had gone out. In a similar way, we as a church are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And as our high priest Jesus is concerned that our light not go out, he spends time tending to us, commending and correcting, so our witness continues. Well, here we have a direct letter from Jesus to help us continue to shine as a light. Sometimes we forget how sweet it is to get a letter. I remember my letters 20 years ago that Gloria would write me, and I'd open them and read them, giddy with excitement. Here was a, a woman I cared for and I admired, and she was writing to me. And I'd pour over those words over and over again. I remember back in the day when there was a time we moved from handwritten letters to emails. And now it's changed again. Now instead of waiting for emails, what are we waiting for? Well, WhatsApp messages, aren't we? But you get the point, whether it's a WhatsApp or an email from someone you love, what do you do when you get one of those? Well, you click on it. You click on it, you open it with such fervency and quickness, even before they've had the chance to put their phone down, they've already received those two blue check marks. You have to look at the message. Well, friends, imagine for a minute if Jesus had written a letter to our church, Redeemer Church of Dubai. Imagine if Jesus sent us an email or a WhatsApp with words for us. What would we do? Well, we would certainly open it and we'd read it very carefully. We would treasure those words. We would take them to heart. We would take them very seriously. Well, church, we don't have a text, but we do have a letter. In fact, we have seven letters from Jesus, the one who walks among the golden lampstands. The fact that there are seven letters and seven golden lampstands tells us something. Seven is a number of completeness in the Bible. It would seem to us today that these seven churches are then representative churches facing the problems that we as a church have faced for the past 2,000 years and still do today. We should take these words to heart as Jesus' words to us. Well, after his initial greeting here, Jesus gives us a bit of a report as to how the church at Ephesus is doing. Now, kids, it's kind of like a report card. It's your marks at the end of the term. He's going to give Ephesus their marks, and he mentions several things they're doing right. Look at verse 2. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. It gives them several things just in one verse. The Ephesians receive high marks for their hard work and perseverance. This church wasn't lazy. They weren't sitting around. To toil here means to work under exhaustion. It's where we get the word copious from. You may take copious notes in class. It's excessive. The point here, the church serves and they serve and they serve. They took initiative and they never gave up. Ministries continued through thick and thin. And they didn't bear with those who are evil. Do you see that there in verse two? They wouldn't tolerate wicked men. This was challenging for those in Ephesus. The city was a huge city. It was a big commercial center. They had three major roads all converging together in the city. It was also the center of the worship of the fertility goddess Diana, the seventh ancient wonder of the world at the time. Sexual immorality was rampant in the city. But God sent the apostle Paul there for three years during his third missionary journey to plant a church. Eventually, there's a big revival there. Many are coming to faith. They're punting their idolatry. They're worshiping Jesus instead. They're joining the church. 
Worship of the risen Christ got so big that the silversmiths were going out of business. No one was buying their silver idols. They end up throwing a riot. And you can read about this in the book of Acts, how they fill the Colosseum in protest, and their goal is to tear the apostle Paul to pieces for leading idol worshipers to Christ. It was ruining their business. The church planting in such a dark place wasn't easy, but a church was started and it stood up for the truth. Look down at verse six, skip down a bit. They joined with Jesus in hating the deeds of the Nicolaitans. We don't know exactly who these people were, but it's pretty certain that they taught that some degree of participation in idolatry was permissible. The point, the Ephesians stood strong against evil. Also there in verse two, they tested those who claimed to be apostles, but were not. They found them to be false. The church had good theology. They protected the church by testing the claims of everyone. First John warns us that there are many false prophets who have gone out into the world. The Ephesians didn't believe everything they heard. This is important for us to hear, isn't it? Redeemer Church, we can't just turn on the TV or click on the internet and believe everything we hear. Just because someone claims to be a Christian doesn't mean their teaching is distinctly Christian. It's important today because everybody is saying something these days. Anyone can upload a video, start a website, write an article or post something on social media. Anybody can make a claim to know something or put themselves forward as a teacher or expert about anything. So in light of all this information to sift through, what do we read? What do we watch? What do we agree with? Well, church, we should take all of the teaching we hear, including everything you hear from your elders at Redeemer, and we should line it up against the measuring stick of the Bible. This is our measuring rod. This is our standard. We line everything up to it. And this church did just that. They not only worked hard at knowing the truth, but there in verse three, they suffered well. Look down there, they endured patiently. Another translation says they endured hardships for Jesus' name. We recall the great chapter of the Bible, Hebrews 10, where it speaks of the Christians who joyfully accepted the plundering of their things and even their bodies. Or when the Apostle Paul says in Philippians 1, whatever I had as gain, I count as loss. Do you see what kind of church Ephesus was? This church was strong doctrinally. They had a good theology. This church was strong ministerially. They worked hard in their community. This church was faithful. And at the end of verse three, they had not grown weary. And Jesus says, this is good. Now at this point in the passage, we're thinking, well, this is pretty great. We want to join this church. Sign me up for the next Friday membership class. We're ready to sit up in that front row of the next worship service at First Baptist Ephesus of the Living Water Church. They're a good bunch. But not so fast. Verse four. After high marks in the first several subjects, Jesus gives them an F, a failing grade at another area. Look at verse four. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. You see that but, beginning of the sentence, but. You've done a lot of good things, but in this area, there's a problem. But I have this 
against you. These are not words that you want to hear Jesus say. I mean, before this, if you're the Ephesians and you're hearing the commendation, what are you thinking? Well, you're thinking, we're pretty solid. That's right. First Baptist of Ephesus of the Living Water Church is a great place. We have great doctrine. We've shown those Nicolaitans a thing or two. We have 74 ministries happening. We've suffered well. Okay, that's right, Jesus. I think this report card is pretty accurate. And then comes the splash of cold water to wake up. You've believed well. You've done great things. But you've forsaken your first love. Ephesus, we have a problem. Something happened over the years. Forty years earlier, the apostle Paul had written a letter to the Ephesians. He ended the book in chapter 6 with a blessing on those who love Christ with an incorruptible love. But over the years, over the decades, something happened. Not with their doctrine and not with their ministry, but there was a problem ruining their church and they didn't even know it yet. Their church was falling apart. Like a church with a termite infestation. Now, back in my home country, you'd have houses made of wood in many places, and a termite's a little bitty bug that loves to eat wood for dinner. Now, kids, this is crazy, right? I mean, cinnamon, cinnamon rolls are yummy. I know some of you like eggs, that's okay. But wood, wood is gross, it's inedible for us. But these little bitty bugs, they love wood, they'll do whatever they can for a wood-filled meal. And they're so small, you can't really see them. You don't know that they're there, but they just start munching on your house. They eat it from the inside out. The house can look great, like everything is in order, but slowly these termites are eating away at it. And pretty soon the whole structure can just fall apart with no warning. That wood you thought was so sturdy ends up being hollow because the termites have eaten away at the inside of the house. That's what's happening here. The church looked good. But at the heart of the church, there was a massive problem. They had forsaken their first love. Their hearts were hollow. Their love was empty. Now, what is this love Jesus is speaking of? Well, Jesus is likely referring to here is the love they had for him early on in their faith, this incredible, wholehearted love. In addition to this, he may also have in mind the love they had for one another. G.K. Beale says, to take it even further, Jesus is saying it's a love for him that's lost, which results in them not witnessing Christ to the world that the church had ceased to be a light to the world. Now, I don't think you can really separate these three loves, can you? Love for God, love for the church, and love for the lost. They all go together, but all of them start with affections for Jesus. The church at Ephesus did a lot of good things, but their love had faded. They had become religious professionals, Here's what I mean by that. They were going through all the motions, attending church services, serving in ministry, learning theology, good things. But they were so busy doing the work of God, they had little time for God. Unfortunately, this is easy for us to do, isn't it? We get so caught up doing the work of God without God. We serve God without loving God. Well, this is concerning because on the surface, it could look like we're doing everything right, like that house covered in termites. But here we see the church at Ephesus needed love. That's why Paul writes 1 Corinthians 13, the famous love chapter in the Bible. It's familiar to, to most of us. We hear it at weddings all the time. Love, love, love. Love is patient. Love is kind. 
But did you know that the chapter's actually a rebuke? What Paul's saying is that you do lots of great things. You can serve for the sake of Christ. You can be a biblical scholar, but if you do not have love, so what? You have nothing and you gain nothing. What Jesus wants most from you is your love. That's it, that's the point of the passage. Not because he's pining away, feeling sorry for himself. No, not at all. He wants your love because he loves you and loving him back is what you were made to do. But if we replace love with service, I wonder what that means for us now in these days of quarantine. Most are not able to serve the church in the same ways we were before. Of course, many of us are still using our gifts, but for many of us, it's quite different. Things have changed. What's left? Have you seen that your relationship with God was really just doing and not being? Well, how are you today? Has your love grown cold? Maybe you've only engaged God with your mind. Well, can you win the Bible trivia game? You know that Methuselah lives the longest life in the Bible, and you've actually read the book of Leviticus twice. Well, that's great, but do you know Christ? Do you love him? The Ephesians had great doctrine. They worked hard, but they lost their first love. My prayer is that we won't be like this, that a Redeemer, you know that we do many things to engage the mind. We do all kinds of Bible studies. We're always talking about the Bible. We're always studying the Bible. Everything we do revolves around God's word. We encourage one-on-one -on -one discipleship. Our youths study the Bible. We have a midweek Bible study. We have Philippians Zoom groups. We have the Gulf Training Center. We're all about the Bible. We're all about sound theology and doctrine. This is good. I'm glad we're doing this. We're gonna keep doing this. We're never gonna stop doing this because the Christian faith has to start in our minds. We'll never stop these things. They're essential because without them, we're done. But it can't stop there. It has to go from the head to the heart. So hear this, fellow Christian. Love for Christ and love for one another always starts with right doctrine, always. But love for Christ and for one another doesn't necessarily flow from right doctrine. Does that make sense? Love must start from and flow from right theology, but love doesn't automatically flow from it. We might know a lot of facts about God. We might know our Bible from Genesis all the way to Revelation, but it can't stop at our mind. It must flow all the way down to our hearts. Well, another potential stumbling block for loving God with our hearts is moralism. Maybe for you, you refrain from what you'd call the big sins. Your life is relatively clean. Maybe some of you come from backgrounds where there's Maybe just one or two really big sins, really big ones. Every time the preacher had a chance, he would preach on it. If your friends were whispering about something, that was it. Maybe the big sin had to do with something you wore or didn't wear, something you ate, something you didn't eat, something you drank, something you didn't drink. So many of our cultures come with customs and laws, do's and don'ts. If you wanna be considered a moral person, just follow the culture's rules. But we know that moralism doesn't equal love. For some of us, the temptation is only engage God with our ministry. We think that we'll grow our love for God simply by getting more involved in the church. Have you ever heard someone say that? I'm just not feeling really connected to God, so I'm gonna sign up for a new ministry. What the church at Ephesus didn't realize was that being good and doing good things is not the ultimate thing. They were religious professionals. Now, could this happen to us? 
We could engage God only with our minds, with our moralism, and with our ministry. Well, sure can. Well, if this is you, what do we do? Well, Jesus tells us in verse five, he gives us three things. Now, I don't really have one main point today, but I certainly have three application points that come right out of verse five. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. So here, three R's, kids. Don't miss the three R's. We'll take those one at a time. Well, first, remember where you've fallen from. They were doing well. Remember, at one point, decades before Paul was their all-star pastor, Paul poured into the church for three years. In many ways, this church is talked about as the model church in Scripture. Well, friend, I want you to think back to the love you had at first. Do you remember, as a new Christian, the times of prayer, the hours of Bible reading, the evangelistic zeal? You were a light. Well, friend, is that still there? Well, do you ever cry during your times with God? Now, I don't cry that often. Yes, it's true. I cry at the end of every sports movie. This is a fact my kids can attest to. But I asked myself this week, does reading about God and his love for me move me to tears and emotion? You might not be a crier. That's not the point. We can feel deep emotion without shedding a tear. The actual tears dripping down our face is not the point. The point is your heart moved by God. Look back at your zeal and passion. When was it there? Remember and reflect. Well, second thing, repent. The second R is to repent. Now, to repent means to acknowledge the problem and then to change, is to turn. What areas do you need to repent of? Have you lost your first love? One way to ask this is, do you love God in such a way that you despise the things he despises? Do you hate sin like God hates sin? Are you walking with God in such a way that you're fighting your sin? If you're a member of our church, this is your most important responsibility. Did you know that? More than anything else you do in the church, the biggest thing is that you walk with Jesus. We are the body of Christ, and when one person isn't right with God, it affects the whole body. It affects all of us. Your relationship with God is a community project. Think about how it feels when you have a toothache. All you can think about is that tooth. Or, kids... How about when you hurt your toe? The other day I was walking by my bed and crack. My foot hit the bed and it felt like I broke my little toe. It was just, just a little toe, but I was screaming like a baby in the middle of the night. And I know I've had four babies. Now it may seem like that toe is not doing anything, but let me tell you something. In that moment, my little toe was the most important part of my body. It was the most important thing in my life as I was writhing in pain on my bed. Actually, even your little toe is a big deal. That little toe keeps your body balanced. We need all our toes. We need all our body parts. And when they hurt, it's all you can think about in those moments. A friend, if you're a member of our church and you haven't been walking with Jesus, use this time in quarantine to get right with God. Remember and repent. Repent if you're not being evangelistic. That's what it means here to shine brightly. Repent, remember, and return. The third R, the final R is to return. Well, I know I've cheated a little bit. If you look at the text, you're probably thinking, Pastor David says, do. I know that. Another way to translate it could be to say, return to your old ways. Here's what this means. True repentance isn't just saying you're sorry. When Jesus says do or return, he's not 
going about physically doing things. That's not what he's saying. He's talking about a changed heart. This is really important because at the end of verse five, Jesus says he will remove the lampstand unless they repent. In verse six, Jesus threatens to remove it. It's a guarantee that Jesus will build his church. We know that it's guaranteed that he will, but it's not for certain that all churches will remain. Then that all churches will continue their impact. God could lessen our light and witness to the world. And what a sad day that would be. If you're a follower of Christ, what does returning to him mean? How do you cultivate your first love? One thing would be to pray, to ask God to draw you nearer to him. God loves answering prayers like that. Another would be to simply read God's word and ask God to convict you of your sin. You could talk to a fellow Christian about how you're doing and study the scriptures together. You could read good books. Returning for you likely means taking the extra time you may have to examine your heart. It may mean, again, rekindling a relationship with a non-believer and sharing the gospel with them. But remember, the greatest thing you can do for the mission of our church is to love Jesus with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. Friends, if you hear these words, take them to heart. If you hear these words, take them to heart, and we can persevere in Christ's love. And there's a sweet promise at the end of our passage if we do. Verse 7, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. It says that as we persevere in Christ's love, he'll give us the right to eat from the tree of life. This is a foretaste of the great wedding feast of the Lamb, where the groom, Jesus, will sit down with us, the bride. Oh, what a wonderful day that'll be. But maybe you're watching this video, though, and you can't return to God because you've never first turned to him. For you, then, perhaps this is the day when you first turned to Christ in faith. Now, way back after the creation of the world, there was that tree in the garden, the tree that the first humans, Adam and Eve, ate from that brought sin into the world. We've all followed suit. We've sinned against a holy and perfect God. Their sin left them and us in exile, out of the garden, out of fellowship with God. But the good news is that there's a bridge. There's a bridge that can get us back into the garden, a better garden. Jesus, God in the flesh, came to earth. He lived a perfect life, and he took upon himself our sins on the cross. He became that bridge for us. And his resurrection from the dead proves that he's strong enough to bring us across that valley to God. Now, if we turn to Jesus, he will grant us to eat from the tree of life in the paradise of God. Now, friend, if you've never trusted in Jesus to save you, there's no better day than today. I would encourage you to do that. As we come to the end of the sermon, just to summarize the main point, oh, Redeemer Church, let us not lose our first love. And if there is a main point to leave you with, I'm saying it here at the end of the sermon. Walk with Jesus. Walk with Jesus so our light does not go out. Well, to that end, let's pray. Oh, Father God, we do pray that we as a church would walk with you. We pray that our affections for you would grow. We pray that we would remember you, that we'd remember from where we've come from, that we'd remember from where we've fallen, and that we would repent of our sin, and that we would return and do the works that we've once done. Oh, Father, would we be bold evangelists? Oh, Father, would our love for you then in turn result in a love for one another and a love for the world. Oh, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.